Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show Seinfeld or not, but there's a pretty famous scene in one episode where George is getting dumped by his girlfriend. And in an effort to let him down... Uh, nicely, she says, it's not you, it's me, right? Remember that? Have you ever seen that before? Okay. So I wanted to read to you his response and what he says. She says, it's not you, it's me. Here's how he responds to that. He says, you're giving me the it's not you, it's me routine. I invented it's not you, it's me. Nobody tells me it's them, not me. If it's anybody, it's me. So really what happens here with George is in an effort to not be rejected, he tries to turn the tables on being now the dumpy instead of the one who, or the dumper instead of the one who's being dumped. Anybody ever been rejected before? Yeah, we've all, we've all been there. It's not a great feeling, is it? Like maybe you remember in middle school or high school you had a crush and you got up the courage to ask them to the school dance and you asked them and they said, I'm already going with somebody else. It's not a direct, you know, rejection, but it is at least an indirect rejection. Or maybe you have a crush and you're actually going to get the courage to ask them on a date. And then when you say, hey, you know, I think, would you like to go to dinner or something? And they kind of see where you think that relationship is going to go and they say, you know, it's probably not a good idea. We've got a really good friendship going. I would hate to ruin the, anybody had that speech to them before? I'd hate to ruin our friendship to try to see if this goes anywhere. That's rejection. Or maybe you tried out for a sports team or a group and you weren't picked, you didn't make the list, that's rejection. Maybe you've been denied for a loan, for buying a home or a car or something else, that's rejection. So we've all been there in one form or another. Maybe you, you know, tried to get a job and they picked somebody else. Well, they picked them over you, which means you were rejected. Everybody's had to face rejection at some point, including Jesus. Jesus has faced rejection probably, I would say, absolutely more than anyone else who's ever lived. And one thing that we know about Jesus is that even you know, prophets, hundreds of years before his birth, prophesied all sorts of things about him. And one of the things that Isaiah prophesied 700 years before the birth of Jesus is that he would be rejected. We're going to start here today, Isaiah 53, verse 5. He says, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. So what we're going to talk about today is rejection and Jesus. What we're going to look at this morning on Easter is four people from Scripture who all rejected Jesus. And we're not just going to look at the people that rejected him, but their, their reasons why. 
And some of them, especially the first person that we'll look at, seems to have a lot of really good reasons to reject Jesus. But we'll see really at the surface why they did and then what we can learn from their rejection of him, what we can learn from these people who rejected Jesus. So four people. And the first one's not really a person. It's a group of people that we'll look at for a little bit. So the first group that we'll look at who rejected Jesus are the Jewish religious leaders of his day. So the people who you would have thought would have championed him, would have celebrated him, would have promoted him, because they're bringing new people into the movement, like they're really, you know, doing something here. They opposed him actively, repeatedly. Day after day, every opportunity that they had, they openly, actively rejected Jesus. And if you were to ask them, why? Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you, like, be on his team? Why wouldn't you bring him in? they would honestly have some pretty good reasons on the surface of why they rejected Jesus. Let's look at a few of them here. So the first one, again, we talked about just now that they sort of didn't always get along with Jesus, but there's one time that we know of from Luke's gospel where Jesus is invited by a Pharisee to his house for dinner. So it's like, maybe this guy's going to be kind of a soft spot. Maybe he's going to be an entry point for Jesus. Maybe things are turning a corner. So Jesus is invited to this Pharisee's house for dinner. They're sitting there, and all of a sudden, this woman rushes in and comes and finds Jesus and sits at his kneels at his feet. Now, Luke tells us what we wouldn't know otherwise, that this woman was what they would call an immoral woman or a sinful woman. So obviously, she has some sort of reputation in the community. They, they would know her, and even if they didn't know her, uh, they would maybe see by her appearance that she doesn't really belong here. Yet she finds Jesus at the table. She rushes down with his expensive bottle of perfume that would have cost hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. And what she does is she pours this expensive perfume all over the feet of Jesus, and she's weeping. So with this perfume filling the room where they're sitting and with her tears, she's washing the dirty, dusty feet of Jesus at this dinner table. And she uses her hair to then wipe his feet clean. But here's the response of the Pharisee, Luke 7, 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. So really, the Pharisee brings up a pretty good point here, doesn't he? Honestly, what kind of a prophet wouldn't know through his prophet powers who this woman is? And if he's really a holy person, if he's really a respected teacher in our community, he shouldn't be anywhere near her, let alone let her touch him in really this intimate type of way with his expensive perfume. So they have a case here, kind of a mark against Jesus in this moment. But the problem here is that this is not just a one-off for Jesus. This type of thing of being around sinners is a problem that is a growing trend for Jesus. Then down to Luke 15, verse 1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Again, it's not just this one time at this one dinner that this one woman comes and is around him and close to him and touching him. It's, he, he, doesn't just, he doesn't seem to avoid these kinds of people. He seems to engage with these kinds of people. Again, from the Pharisees' point of view, they have a good argument to reject Jesus. If he's really who he claims to be, he would never associate with these sinful people. 
If he's really this holy person, this prophet, this rabbi that we're all supposed to respect who obeys the law, he would avoid them like the plague. He would stay as far away from them as possible, yet over and over and over again, he invites them closer to himself. So really the Pharisees have some good points of why they would and why we maybe should reject Jesus. But on top of all of that, Jesus over and over again seems to break from tradition. He seems to do things that really buck the rules. He seems to do things that he shows disdain for their long heritage, their proud heritage. So an example of this is one day Jesus enters the temple. We we talked about it last week. So he enters the temple for worship. And on the outskirts of the temple as you're walking in are these tables where some Pharisees and other religious leaders have set up booths to exchange currency. If you're coming in from out of town and you want to buy an animal for sacrifice in the temple, you've got to exchange the currency and pay the fee to do so. You've got to go through us. You can't bring your own animal. You've got to buy one here so we know that it's spotless and clean and worthy for worship in the temple. And Jesus would have come in and out of this temple multiple times a day for his entire life. He's seen these tables week after week, month after month, year after year. Yet yet one day he just loses it for no reason. One day he just goes off and he he makes a mess of the tables and he whips the animals out and causes causes a scene, causes a frenzy. And he yells at the religious leaders for what they're doing here. He just goes off on them. And they don't respond to this very well. Mark eleven eighteen. 18, when the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. So the religious leaders have a growing problem on their hands. They have a rogue teacher on the loose that they cannot control. He will not listen to them. He will not obey them. He won't even obey the law. This is a problem. And it even goes further. We we mentioned this story briefly last week, too. So also on a different day outside the temple, Jesus heals a man who's been lame for 38 years. He's been born. He's born lame. He's laying there. He, He wants a healing. He can't be healed. And so Jesus heals him. So you would, again, think, this is good for the Pharisees. This is our guy on our team that we want to bring in who's doing these crazy signs from God. The problem is, Jesus happens to do this miracle on the Sabbath day. That's a problem. He's broken one of their top ten rules. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So how the Pharisees, how the religious leaders view the Sabbath, any physical activity over a bare walk to the temple and back is work that breaks that law. So Jesus healing a person on that day would have broken their law, broken their tradition. And on top of that, Jesus actively has the man break the Sabbath because after he's healed, Jesus says, roll up your mat and walk. Well, rolling up your mat and walking as far as he had to walk would have been too much work. He's not just breaking the Sabbath himself. He's asking this man to break the Sabbath as well. So they, he, he's, he's going too far, he's doing too much, he's, getting, he's coloring out of the lines. We must reject him. He's not one of us. But then when they approach him about this, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Here's what happens, Mark, John 5, verse 16. The Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him, for he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his Father, thereby making himself equal with God. This was too much. Jesus went too far. We can't 
we, we can't find a way to hide this. We can't twist his words back to make it fit within orthodoxy. This is not going to work. He can't be on our team. We can't be on his team. We must reject him. He claims to be the son of God. He claims at other times to be God himself. We can't go there. So you look at all of these things piling up on the Pharisees' ledger here, and you would say they have a lot of good reasons to reject Jesus. It makes sense. It fits. If, if I were in their shoes, I'd have a hard time accepting him too. But here's the problem with all of these arguments, is they're not the real reason that the Pharisees and the religious leaders actually rejected Jesus. If you were to ask them why, that's what they, they would give you a laundry list of crimes that he's committed, a laundry list of no-nos that he has done, these things that he's said and done that we just can't abide, we just can't let go. But here's the real reason why they rejected Jesus. Luke 12, verse 1. Meanwhile, the crowds grew until thousands were milling about and stepping on each other. Jesus turned first to his disciples and warned them, Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy. So the religious leaders didn't reject Jesus because he broke tradition, because he bucked the rules, because he associated with sinners, because he disrespected their law. The real reason they rejected Jesus was pride. Jesus was a threat to their religious monopoly. Thousands follow him everywhere he goes. Not the religious leaders who are obeying the law, who know the law forwards and backwards, who are spotless and clean, and I'm trying to teach you the right way. They're following this other guy. So it's pulling some of their power away from them. That's why they rejected Jesus. It was their pride. The people listened to him and followed him and not them. And the problem with Jesus, the confusing part, there's two things. He did perform miracles that they can't explain, which gives the appearance of validity to Jesus. Because they can't say, they, they do try at times, they say, well, he's casting out demons in the name of Satan. And Jesus says, well, how is Satan going to cast out Satan? That doesn't make any sense. So it's an obvious thing that they just can't refute. And uh, the other part of this is they, they actually, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of setup attempts for Jesus. They will try in public to ask him a question about the law that's a tricky question. And they ask it in such a way that if he says this, it's wrong. But if he says this, it's wrong. And so he picks door number three every time. But time after time, they try to do setup after setup after setup to get him in a bind, and he never falls for the trap. He never falls for it. And so he has these miracles that seem legitimate. We, we've not actually caught him technically doing anything sinful or wrong, even though the way we interpret the law, he is. Or we're trying to make people believe that. It was their pride. And really, it came down to this, honestly, for them. It wasn't just that they rejected him. It was that he, in turn, rejected them right back. What did we just read in Luke chapter 12? He says, beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. So the problem with Jesus is that he saw through their facade. He called out their hypocrisy. He spoke against their empty religious tradition that meant nothing. And so they can't stand that. Their pride is now too wounded too many times to accept him. And so they have no choice but to reject him. So it wasn't the surface level issues that they claim it was. It was really at the heart. Their pride is why they rejected Jesus. The second person who rejected Jesus, his name is Herod Antipas. 
So if you were here last week, we talked about the temple. It's called Herod's Temple. So Herod the Great built the temple a few years before Jesus was born. Now his son, Herod Antipas, is ruling over the same region now that Jesus is an adult in public ministry. So Herod's an interesting guy. He is Jewish by heritage, but he's really more, he seems more like the Roman authorities and the way that he lives and governs his life. Uh, and that's kind of a trend that we see in this region uh, of the world at the time. And Herod goes through an interesting progression when it comes to his interaction with Jesus. They only meet one time. So let's look at this first, Luke 9, verse 7, when Herod first hears about Jesus. So it says, when Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, heard about everything Jesus was doing, he was puzzled. Some were saying that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. Others thought Jesus was Elijah or one of the other prophets risen from the dead. I beheaded John, Herod said. So who is this man about whom I hear such stories? And he kept trying to see him. So he's really curious about Jesus. He really wants to meet him, right? And he, he looks and hears, and he's fascinated by this guy. So then several months, a couple of years go by, and they finally get a chance to meet. So one early, early morning on Friday morning, Jesus is arrested in a garden where he's with his followers. He's taken to the high priest's house where he's questioned, and then they take him to the Roman authorities because they want him killed. Well, the problem with the Roman authorities that we'll talk about in a moment, they just don't want to deal with this Jew problem. We don't, this is an internal affair. This is your religion. This is your thing. You deal with it. And so they hand him off to Herod. So Jesus finally comes before Herod. He's so excited. Here's what it says, Luke 23, verse 8. Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. He asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. Meanwhile, the leading priests and teachers of religious law stood there shouting their accusations. Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate, who's the Roman authority that he, that he came from. So look at this progression here from Herod. So first, Herod's confused. He hears about this eccentric teacher, and people are saying, it's the guy that I just killed. Like, I'm the one who ordered the beheading of John. I washed his head, leave his body, and they're saying it's him. I don't think so. They're saying maybe it's Elijah or one of the other Old Testament prophets. I'm not buying that, but he's confused as to who this guy is. And then his, his uh, confusion grows to curiosity because he's like, okay, I'm hearing great things about this guy. Like, he's creating some excitement in town. This is the kind of guy I could party with. Like, this is the kind of guy that, you know, we could, we could be buds here. Like, we could do some cool stuff. I've got the power. He's got the miracles. We could be a cool tag team. Like, we could really get connected here. He's curious, but in the end, he's never fully convinced. He's confused, curious, but never convinced. Have you ever heard of someone who actually met a celebrity that they loved, met them in person, Right? where maybe, you know, they're doing an autograph signing somewhere, and you go have them sign a thing, or maybe you just run into a celebrity, oh, I can't believe it's you, you know, whatever. And then you've heard stories like that, but they're really disappointed. Like, they're really just let down. Maybe that celebrity is really rude to them when they meet them, or maybe they're really boring, and they're like, I can't believe that people actually watch you on TV. Like, you're so boring. You're stupid, you know. So maybe you've heard of that kind of thing, where you're really just let down by this interaction with this famous person. That's exactly what happens to Herod. 
He's been building up the anticipation, one day I'm going to meet this guy, and it's going to be magical. It's going to be amazing. And finally, Jesus shows up. Finally, he's there. He's in the flesh. He's in person. We're in the same room together. He just stands there. He doesn't do any miracles. He doesn't perform any tricks, Jesus, right? He, he doesn't even say anything. He just stands there quietly. And Herod's like, you're wasting my time. My expectations were way up here, and you did not meet them. Get out of my sight. So that's what Herod has to deal with. He's confused, curious, but not convinced. And so the reason that Herod rejected Jesus was because of pleasure. Pleasure. Herod was frivolous. He just cared about the here and now. He just wanted the highlights of life. He was just interested in what Jesus could do, not really in who he was. And so when Jesus shows up, he's disappointed. When he, Jesus wouldn't perform like a trained seal, you know, for the master, like he, he, he just said, well, I'm out. Like, you're, you really disappointed me. Get out of my sight. He wasn't useful to Herod anymore, so Herod rejected him because of his pleasure. So now we have two more people who reject Jesus, and you might be surprised that I put them together, but you'll see why in a moment. So the last two people that we're going to look at could not be more different Yet their reason for rejecting Jesus is the same reason. Two men who were vastly different in every way you could imagine, yet their reason for rejecting Jesus was the same. So the next person to reject Jesus is, who we've mentioned briefly, Pilate. And he's the Roman authority over this region where Jesus lived. So Jesus, again, as we said, one night was arrested by Jewish officials, brought to Pilate because they want Pilate, the Roman authority, to execute this person that we deem a threat. He's saying he's a king of the Jews. Well, Caesar, if he hears that, he's not going to like that, so you've got to do something about it. But Pilate, it's like 3 in the morning. Pilate's like, why did you wake me up for this internal dispute? Go take him to Herod. He goes off to Herod down the street. We already saw what happened there. Not much. So like an hour later, he's back. So Pilate now has to do something. He has no choice. So I want to look at this interaction between Pilate and Jesus from really all four Gospels to get a full 3D view of their interaction to see how and why Pilate rejected Jesus. It doesn't take long. They, Pilate and Jesus kind of have a talk with each other. They have an interaction, a conversation. It doesn't take long for Pilate to say, this guy is not a threat to anyone. Like, why are you complaining about him? He seems totally innocuous. He seems totally innocent. He seems totally fine. What's going on? And so here's what happens. Luke 23, 13. Pilate called together the leading priest and other religious leaders along with the people, and he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent it back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. Pilate knows he's been backed into a quarter. He knows he's got to do something. He knows he's got to appease the crowd in some little way. So he throws him a bone. He says, I'm just going to whip him a little bit. I'm going to beat him up. I'm going to slap him on the hand, and then I'm going to let him go. So that's what he does. After he does that, John 19.4 says this, Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. But here's what the religious leaders say, verse 12. Then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leaders shouted, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. 
So as much as Herod, or as much as Pilate tried to appease the crowd, they would not be appeased. As much as he tried to throw them a bone, they wanted red meat. They didn't just want the bone, they wanted the whole thing. And really what the religious leaders here do is they politically manipulate Pilate. Because what do they do? They say, now, it would be a shame if you let Jesus go, and then Caesar hears that something bad. It'd be a shame if some, I don't know who would go and tattle on you. No, we wouldn't do that. But it'd be a real shame if somebody went and told Caesar that you're not really serious about keeping the peace in this area of the world. It'd be, you know, it'd be a real shame because he's probably going to at least fire you from your job because you can't do it. And probably what that means is you're done. You're toast. Your head's coming off your body. So they put him in this corner. They blackmail him to try to get from him what they want. But uh, Pilate now, at the end, he's, he's trying to go through, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? He thinks, okay, the people are going to bail me out. The, the, the crowd who's kind of turned against me, they're going to save my hide. Because here's what they do. Back to Mark chapter 15, verse 6. So here, here's how he's going to be let off the hook. It was the governor's custom each year, so Pilate's the governor, it was his custom each year during Passover to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. One of the prisoners at the time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Woo, he's going to get off the hook. He's going to get to release this, he's going to get to release Jesus, right, and let this other guy, you know, take the hit. And it's not going to be his fault. It's the, I can blame the crowd. They did it. They twisted my arm. It's their choice. So here's what he says. Would you like me to release to you this king of the Jews, Pilate asked. Now catch this. For he realized by now that the leading priest had arrested Jesus out of envy. He's a pretty smart guy. He knows what's going on. But at this point, the leading priest stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked him, then what should I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Have you ever had a plan that didn't go according to plan? Have you ever had an idea that in your brain was genius, even on paper was foolproof, and yet when it, the execution just never worked? Maybe you feel like sometimes Wiley e. Coyote from, you know, from the Looney Tunes. He had the best plans every time to catch the Roadrunner. They were foolproof plans. He bought the best Acme stuff that money could buy. And yet every time, he's the one getting run over. He's the one getting blown up. He's the one <whistles> falling off the cliff every time. Genius plan, but it doesn't work. That's what happens to Pilate here. Pilate has the plan. They're going to bail me out. I've got this insurrectionist who's really committed murder, and I've got this other guy who's saying some funny things, right? Who do you think they're going to let go back on the streets where their wives and children live? Probably the innocent guy, but that's not what happens. It blows up in his face. They say, no, no, release the murderer back into the streets. That's insane, but that's what they do. We want this guy who just says some crazy stuff to be crucified until he's dead. Release the other guy. So the plan doesn't work. So Pilate's left with no choice. Matthew 27, 24. Pilate saw he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. Again, over and over and over and over again, Pilate has said, this man is innocent. But no one will listen to him. So now what he's got to say first is, I am innocent. 
He literally, where everyone can see him, washes his hands as a physical sign saying, this is on you guys. I don't want to do this. You shouldn't be doing this, but you're leaving me no choice. So I'm going to give you what you want and have this man killed. But I'm innocent and he's innocent. And this is on you. So in, in that way, Pilate rejected Jesus. There's one more person who you might be surprised rejects Jesus for the same core reason that Pilate did that we'll get to in a moment. And I want to read his account quickly from his own point of view. This is Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 66. Here's the fourth man that rejects Jesus. Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below. So Jesus is inside the high priest's house on trial. Peter's outside by himself. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. She looked at him closely and said, You are one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said, and he went out into the entryway. Just then, a rooster crowed. When the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling the others, this man is definitely one of them. But Peter denied it again. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, you must be one of them because you're a Galilean. Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he broke down and wept. So the fourth person to reject Jesus was, in fact, one of his best friends and closest followers, Peter. And what's interesting is just a few hours before this happened, Jesus with his disciples having their last meal together says, hey guys, I hate to say this, hate to break it to you, but you're all going to abandon me tonight. But who speaks up? Peter. And he says, Lord, I would never abandon you. Even if I have to die for you, I would never abandon you like that, like these losers are going to, clearly, because they're not as good as, as me, right? That's what he does. But Jesus says, Peter... Before the night is over, you'll deny even knowing me three times. And so Jesus is then arrested, and in the garden, Peter tries to put up a good fight. Like, he picks up a sword, cuts off a soldier's ear. Like, he's, he's in it for a minute there. Like, he, he's really going to try to defend Jesus when there's a big crowd around, but now he's by himself. Now he's sitting in the fire around a few people that he doesn't know. They don't know him, but they kind of recognize him, and they point him out, and he's... Like, uh, it's not safe anymore to be a follower right now. Because Jesus is right inside there fighting for his life. I know he's about to lose it uh, later on this morning, and I don't want to make this a party of two. And so when there's no safety net there, he's not so bold anymore. When there's no one around to impress, like his other followers, the followers of Jesus, he, he, he's not really so into it anymore. And so he rejects Jesus. That's why he weeps. He knows he's rejected Jesus. And it may not seem like it, but Pilate's reason and Peter's reason for rejecting Jesus is the same reason. They both reject him because of pressure or fear. So again, Pilate is facing pressure from the religious leaders. If you don't do what we want, we're going to go tell your boss and he's going to kill you. That's pressure. He's got pressure from the crowd. There's a mob forming here. So I, I've got to keep the peace. Like I, They have a point. If, if I can't keep the peace, Caesar will find someone who can. I don't want to deal with that. So he's got pressure. There is pressure all around him. And so the pressure led to fear, and that became his rejection of Jesus. 
Again, Peter talked big when he was in his group of friends, but when he's out there by himself with with no net under the tightrope, it's a different story. The pressure became too much for him. The fear became too great for him. And for that same reason, even though it was the greatest mistake of his life, Peter rejects Jesus. So the religious leaders reject Jesus because of pride. Herod rejects Jesus because of pleasure. Pilate and Peter reject Jesus because of pressure. But there's one more person who's rejected Jesus. Can you guess who it is? It's you. It's me. That's the other person that's not in the story, but we're all here. And at some point, in some way, for probably one of the same reasons, we've all rejected Jesus. Maybe it's because of pride. Maybe you've rejected Jesus because he's a threat to the control you have over your life, just like the religious leaders feared. I don't need a big sky daddy up there running my life. I'm fine on my own. Maybe you've said something like that anyway. Maybe you've said, I want to manage my own life. Maybe your thing is, if I get Jesus involved, he's going to mess everything up. I'm fine how I am. I don't need him. I don't need anyone. I'm okay. That's pride, and it rejects Jesus. Maybe your pleasure has caused you to reject Jesus. You would say, I'm not ready for that yet. I've got too much life I want to live. I'll get around to it eventually. Like, I'll get there. Like, whenever, you know, I want, whenever I marry, whenever I have kids and we settle down, then we'll get serious, then we'll find a church, and then we'll, we'll love Jesus, and then we'll get into the Bible, and, and then, and then, and then, and then. And guess what? The pleasure thing is an argument you'll use for the rest of your life. There's always a reason why you can't right now. There's always a thing I need to do first, but it's the same reason for Herod. That because Jesus isn't useful to me right now, I don't need him. Or maybe you're kind of like Herod where you, you tried Jesus kind of, sort of, but he didn't perform for you like you thought he would, like a trained seal. And so you're like, no, I still got sick even though I believed in Jesus. Or this person still tragically died even though I believed in Jesus. Or I thought he was going to make me rich and I'm not rich anymore. So you, you kind of sort of tried him, but it didn't work because we're consumed with us. We're consumed with the here and now. We're consumed with pleasure. And so that's the reason why sometimes we reject Jesus. Maybe you're like Pilate or Peter, and pressure has been the reason for your rejection of Jesus. Maybe you would say, it's too much of a risk. Like, there's too many unknowns. If I hand my life over to this guy that lived 2,000 years ago, what if it doesn't work? What if things don't happen like I hope they will? What if I'm disappointed? What if, you know, I, it's like I want to send it back for a return because it's pressure? Or what, what will my friends think if I make this radical change in my life? What will my family think if I make this radical change in my life? What are the things that I don't know? I'm too afraid to make that decision. I'm too afraid. And so because of the pressure, I'm going to pass. Because of the pressure, I'm going to reject Jesus. The sad truth is that for all four of these people that we mentioned, their rejection led to regret. The religious leaders missed their Messiah because they rejected Jesus. Herod rejected long-term joy for short-term pleasure. Pilate knew he sentenced an innocent man to death, and it had to weigh on his conscience. Peter had to deal with and work through gut-wrenching guilt for the rest of his life for abandoning his best friend in his greatest moment of need. And so this Easter, I don't want you to live that kind of regret based on your rejection of Jesus. 
I don't want you to miss out on the most amazing relationship you will ever have. I don't want you to miss out on the greatest adventure of your life by rejecting Jesus. God offers you the only perfect relationship you will ever have with himself. God offers you the greatest opportunity for the greatest adventure you will ever embark upon by living side by side with him. But that requires accepting Jesus, not rejecting him. And maybe you're totally against that right now for one of these reasons. I would say just strongly consider not the what ifs that you're concerned about, but the what if Jesus really is who he claimed to be. Let's go that route instead and see where it takes us. Or maybe you're here and you would say, you know what, I have rejected him or I am rejecting him right now. And it sounds nice, like the adventure you're talking about sounds great. The relationship sounds great. Like forgiveness sounds great. Peace sounds great. Joy sounds great. But you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how long and how forcefully I've rejected Jesus. How many times I've cursed his very existence. How many terrible things I've said and done. There's no coming back for somebody like me. Well, there's good news, you're wrong. Let's go back to where we started, Isaiah 53. We'll read that verse and the verses following to close. Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We, notice that we, not the people of the Old Testament, not they, not somebody else, we. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Here's the good news. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. There is no one who has rejected Jesus long enough or hard enough that he will not accept them. No matter how far away you are, what you've said, what you've done, what you think about yourself, where you came from, it doesn't matter. He will not reject you. He's not going to pull a George and turn the tables, right? So when you say, oh, it's, it's not you, it's me, he's going to say, you're right, it is you. It is you. You're right. But guess what? On the cross, it wasn't you, it was me. That's what Jesus says. He doesn't turn the tables on that, and then he does for our benefit, right? It is you but it's me. And here's the best news of all. He didn't just take your punishment on the cross for your sin. He did. That's amazing. It will change your life. But then he didn't stay dead. That's why we celebrate Easter. He's not a man still on the cross. He's not a man still in the grave. He rose from the dead, and now he sits next to God the Father in heaven, interceding, praying for you that you would not reject him if you are that you would turn to him if you have not. That's who Jesus is. That's what he came to do. That's where he is now. He is risen. He is alive, and he is alive forevermore. He's victorious over sin on the cross. He's victorious over death because he rose from the dead. And today, the question is, will you continue to reject him, or will you, in turn, accept him? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who was rejected so that we could be accepted. 
Our sin is a rejection of Jesus. Our sin separates us from you. But all of that can change. It's true, but it all can change if we simply accept Jesus. If we believe that he died in our place, on our cross, for our sin. Even though, as Pilate knew, he was sinless. He was innocent. He didn't deserve to die. He died for us, for me, for my sin. So may we push past pride. May we push past pleasure. May we push past pressure and say yes to Jesus today. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.